Thank you, Tim. Uh, well, I could talk for a while about uh, how and why that song is special to me, but I won't. But uh, it's a great message, and it's uh, more of a prayer than it is a song, really, when you think about it. Well, open your Bibles tonight to Ephesians chapter number 6. Put on the whole armor of God. Well, that's what we've been talking about, and tonight Paul continues on that theme, and we begin our reading in verse number 15. It would be easy to just pile all of these various parts of the armor in one message and just skim over it, and I've, I've done that, and there's a time and a place where, uh, where that's the best thing to do. But also there are times that we need to just look at each individual piece and take into consideration exactly what it is that Paul's talking about, and, and uh, we, we benefit, I think, much more from doing that. Verse number 15, and so in addition to what he's already talked about, uh, the loins skirt about with truth and the breastplate of righteousness, and, in other words, don't leave part of it at home and, uh, you know, put on some and not all, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Uh, after quite a bit of study, I'm convinced that really there's more confusion about this part of the armor than any of the rest. And as we go on, I think you'll see exactly what I mean. This is really, uh, in one way, very simple. We don't have a long, complex, difficult outline to follow. Basically, there's only two things that we need to consider tonight. First of all, the illustration itself, and secondly, the interpretation of it. What is it? What does it mean? And so he's talking about, notice, the gospel of peace. And, and notice the figure that is used. He says, your feet shod. So Paul is obviously speaking about footwear. Uh, I, I can't remember where it was, but somebody years ago, uh, I, I can't remember if it was a big nationwide chain of, uh, uh, of shoes or whether it was a local store from my hometown, but uh, a part of their advertisement had to do with these words. It said, uh, fine footwear for gentlemen. And, uh, you know, there was a day and a time where there was a lot of emphasis put on footwear. Well, you, you know, we think about this, and it might seem insignificant to you, but actually it's very important. I remember years ago an old fellow saying that he always bought the very best of two things. He bought the very best bed that money could buy, and he bought the very best shoes that money could buy. Because basically he spent, you know, uh, a good part of his life in bed, and when he wasn't in bed, he was on his feet. And he wanted to make sure that he was comfortable regardless of what place he was in. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for that because if you don't get your rest, that's going to affect you the rest of the day. And you certainly need uh, some good shoes in order to be able to get up and stay on your feet all day. Uh, most of the time we think of footwear as just maybe a fashion statement. 
And uh, I don't know how far back in history that goes, but I can remember back as a boy growing up, and I was looking at Jeremy a while ago, and Jeremy uh, got on a pair of red Chuck Taylors that he's wearing up here. See, you you kids don't think I know. Now, that might be a different brand. It might be a knockoff or something, but I know what Chuck Taylors are. Uh, I own a pair of Chuck Taylors, and I usually end up wearing them to Bible school and the the kids say, hey, neat shoes, Brother Stone, and, uh, but, but they're comfortable. Listen, those old canvas tennis shoes is what I grew up wearing. I, I mean, that was the, that was the standard of, of the day. And, uh, you know, whenever I was a boy growing up and I always, you know, wanted to be bigger than Dad, he was 5'8", I wanted to be at least bigger than he was. But the most embarrassing part about was was all of the relatives constantly teased me about my big feet. And boy, you got a good understanding there, son. Boy, you'd be tall if it wasn't so much of you turned under. And I, I've heard all of those stories, but whenever you wear a size 14 shoe, well, you know, that's the price you pay, I guess. And uh, But there come a certain time by high school... Footwear really started to matter. And, uh, you know, we talk about motorcycle boots. I, I remember, you know, that phase everybody went to had to have a pair of motorcycle boots. But when I was in high school, the thing then, I mean, you just wasn't with it. Yeah, I mean, you wasn't cool, cat, unless you had a pair of plain cap-toed Bostonian shoes. And they better be shiny. Uh, I mean, that was just the order of the day, standard footwear for us boys at school or out on the date, and so it was very important. Now, I'm saying all of that for a reason. Usually when we think about footwear, we're thinking about fashion, and uh, shoes certainly ought to serve a useful function. Today, we've got all kinds of different shoes. We've got house shoes. We've got dress shoes, we've got walking shoes, we've got running shoes, climbing shoes, wading shoes, basketball shoes, I mean, shoes for absolutely everything. We have especially designed these shoes for different kinds of work and sports and dress and so forth. Well, in Paul's day, this was really a very simple matter, and that is they wore sandals. Uh, that, that's, listen, that's the only thing I've never worn, and I don't intend to unless it's in a nursing home and they put them on me without, <laughs> without uh, getting my permission. Uh, Jason, whenever he's home, uh, you know, I, that's the end thing, wear those sandals. I want to choke him when I see him come to church or somewhere with a pair of sandals on. But what can you say? You know what they say, right? Well, even Jesus wore sandals, you know. Well, okay, you got me there. But I, I, but listen, that was standard footwear back in those days. They wore sandals. It was a, a leather or a wood sole that was held on with a, with a strap. And uh, they had their lightweight sandals for every day. But the soldiers had to have something more than that. They wore a heavy-duty sandal, and a lot of times it was hob, had hobnails in the sole, something you get a firm footing. So, I don't want you to just think about the matter of fashion. This has nothing to do with fashion. It's all about function. And there's three things in this regard. First of all, when we think about the function uh, of the shoe, of the sandal, 
It had to do with protection, and it was crucial, because regardless of how wise or how strong a soldier was, if he couldn't stand, if he couldn't walk, if he couldn't run, he was out of business, and he's going to be easy prey for the enemy. I mean, who can forget the picture there of Washington and his troops, you know, their, their feet wrapped in bloody rags there during the Revolutionary War. And we think about that, that picture and we're reminded that to go across the rugged terrain, to combat the enemy, to win the victory, you, you've got to have, you've got to have suitable shoes. Even to this day in the army, uh, they, they teach the men and women how important it is to take care of their feet. Right? I, I mean, look, you, you, uh, some of you have sent these pictures, you know, from our troops in Iraq, and, and maybe you'll notice here they are, maybe they're laying in the sand in front of a jeep, or they're draped across the hood of a jeep, and they'll have their boots off and their socks up there drying out. I mean, you listen, we're talking about function, because you've got to be able... To move. Now, this is the analogy that Paul is making here, and it has to do with being prepared, as it were, being able to have on suitable footing. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a commentary on Ephesians many years ago. I have no idea whatever happened to my copy, but I jotted down a statement that he made in this regard. Here's what he said. A very familiar device in warfare in those days was to place certain traps or gins in the ground. They would take a piece of wood or a stick and chisel it into a narrow point, and then they would fix it into the ground with a sharp point sticking slightly above the surface, almost invisible. When an enemy came running along, if he had no sandals on, these spikes would suddenly penetrate the sole of his foot. This would not only cause severe pain, it would cause bleeding, and it might become infected and put the soldier entirely out of action. So now we see how important this is because it's easy to see that if we're going to stay in the battle, we need what Paul is talking about. But not only that, we also see in this analogy the need for stability. In other words, it not only prepares us for the traps and what have you, keeping our feet in good shape, but also stability. You've got to have a good platform. And, and, and you probably noticed the many times that Paul uses the word stand. He says, and having done all, he says stand. And again and again, he says stand. In other words, don't retreat, don't fall down, don't get knocked down. Stand. We're in a fight. We're in a struggle. And for the soldier, the sandals were important for him to do just that. And those studs, the hobnails on the bottom of the shoe, that would give him traction. It would keep him from slipping, keep him from falling. And think about, you know, whether he's crossing rough terrain or whether he's engaged in hand-to-hand combat, it's important that he have a good footing. So he needed stability. Not only that, but he needed mobility. You can't fight a warfare and be one-dimensional. In other words, you can't just major in being offensive-minded or defensive-minded, and kind of like football, isn't it? It takes offense and it takes defense. And being in a warfare, you can't just get out of balance and put all of the emphasis on one particular area and to the neglect of the other. Uh, in other words, you've got to be mobile. You've got to move. 
Alexander the Great was was known for his for his strategy in war. And he was known for the rapid movement of his troops. In fact, whenever you go back to the book of Daniel, you'll see there that Greece is pictured there as a leopard. And in other words, the emphasis there is upon mobility. It's upon the speed. And uh, that was the way he would move his troops around. And while the while the enemy army might be at rest or something, his troops were on the move, ready to spring a surprise attack. It was so effective that the Romans later adopted that same kind of strategy, and to this day, Alexander the Great is known for that kind of strategy. There must be mobility. You've got to be on the move. Somebody, I'm certain you've heard them say, you know, life is kind of like riding a bicycle. You, you know, you either keep pedaling or you fall down. You can't stand still. Uh, oh, there's a lot of truth in that. And the Christian life is a, is, is a bit like that. We can't just become passive. We can't just sit back and take it. In other words, we can't suffer blow after blow after blow after blow from the enemy and not make any kind of preparation. We need mobility, we need the stability, we need the protection. And all of these things are pictured in what Paul is talking about. So, that's the illustration, but now we come down to the interpretation of the illustration, and this is where it gets a bit difficult, and, uh, and, and hopefully you've already seen how important this is. We're talking about our ability to, to win over our enemies our ability to be victorious in the face of conflict. A lot of people claim that this has a reference to the preaching of the gospel. And they base that claim upon what, well, what Paul says over in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 52, which says, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, those are wonderful words, and they're absolutely 100% true. And it is a fact that we ought to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but personally, I don't think that's what he's talking about here in this text, and I'll explain why in just a minute. That is not the idea. He's talking here about standing and fighting. He's not talking about winning the lost. He's not talking about an evangelistic crusade. He's talking about being in the battle against, the, against Satan and winning the battle. And so, notice what he says. Notice the word preparation. That word, that Greek word, means readiness or being prepared. In fact, it's translated ready in Titus chapter number 3 and verse number 1. So, that's the idea, the picture of us being ready. But notice now, the readiness comes from the gospel of peace. Remember the word gospel. We generally... And rightfully so, associate that with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel, right? But the word gospel simply means the good news. 
The good news for all of humanity is that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, right? The good news is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the gospel, and it is good news. But notice here, He doesn't just say with the gospel, but He says the gospel of peace. So the question is, what's He talking about? What is the gospel of peace? And usually the first thing that comes to uh, to a person's mind has to do with us being at peace with God. Many people believe that's what he's talking about here. You see, the natural man's not at peace with God. The natural man, regardless of how religious he might be, regardless of how generous he might be, regardless of his devotion to the church, The natural man is the enemy of God. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, you are living in rebellion against God. Remember, Jesus said, He that is not for me is against me. There's no neutrality. I mean, you're you're either on His side or you're on the wrong side. So, we all, by nature need to be at peace with God. But whenever you, whenever you look at this and take all things into consideration, we realize that ha- that has to do basically with our position before God. Whereas we were the enemies of God, now we've been reconciled to God. And that word reconcile speaks about two opposing parties being brought into a state of oneness. In other words, now there's no animosity between us and God. Now we're in a state of oneness with God. This describes our position. So to be at peace with God, the only thing that is necessary is for me to receive Christ as my Savior. That is a peace that all believers have. If you're here tonight and you're a child of God, you have the peace of God. You have that. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you are at peace with God, I should say. No struggling, no fighting. You are at peace with God. There's no condemnation against you. That is your position. And it's the same for all believers. Nobody has any more of the peace of God than others. Nobody's more at peace with God, I should say, than others. So, we are at peace with God. Now, that's not something we put on and we take off. In other words, as I said the other day, we don't put on salvation one day and take it off the next day. So whenever he says that this has to do with, with notice, the gospel of peace, the peace that he's talking about is not being at peace with God because we already are. Instead, it has to do with the peace of God. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter number 4. Paul is speaking about this here in Philippians chapter 4. Now, being at peace with God has to do with your relationship. The peace of God has to do with your fellowship. Notice what he says in verse number 7. He says, And the peace of God which passeth understanding shall keep, that is, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now go on and look down to verse number, uh, let's see, verse number, verse number nine. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard 
and seen in me, and I've underlined this next word, you should too, do. In other words, there are things you must learn, things you must do, and here's the result of it, and the God of peace shall be with you. So Paul is describing, notice here, the peace of God, and he's telling us that to enjoy the peace of God, certain conditions must be met. These Christians are at peace with God, but they don't necessarily enjoy the peace of God. So, Paul sets himself up as an example. And he says, what you've seen, what you've learned in me, he says, I want you to do that. And if you do that, in other words, if you meet those conditions, the end result is that you'll be the recipient of the peace of God. So it depends upon what we do, right? Are you with me? So you see, this fits the analogy that Paul is using. To say that this has reference to preaching the gospel, you know, that takes it entirely out of the context of warfare. And to say that this has reference to being at peace with God, that changes everything because it, there it's clearly speaking about our salvation, our standing before God, but it fits when we're talking about conditions that we must meet. And what's he saying? Put on the whole armor of God. In other words, there's something that we Christians must do in order to be prepared to face the enemy. What must we do? We must have our feet shod with, notice, the preparation of the gospel, that is, the good news of peace. So all believers are at peace with God, but only certain believers have the peace of God. Now, listen carefully. If we do not have the peace of God in our heart, we're in no condition to face the enemy and to be victorious. Remember when Jesus is getting ready to leave this world. He's given instructions to His followers. He's given them an example. And He's warned them time and time again that they're going to be hated, they're going to be despised, they're going to be persecuted. What must be going through their mind at that moment? They are about to lose the company of the dearest friend they've ever had. They're about to lose the company of the, their commander-in-chief. They're about to be left alone, as it were, in this sinful world where there are enemies on every hand. And the Lord takes them into the upper room and begins to speak to them, preparing them for the struggle that lies ahead. And I want you to listen to what he says in John chapter 14 to begin with. And here in chapter number 14 and verse number 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Then in chapter 16, and they're still in the upper room, and verse number 32, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, and now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world 
ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, I believe that Paul is speaking about exactly the same thing that Jesus was speaking about there in the upper room to his disciples. And Jesus said here that, that there is good news. There are bad times coming, hard times coming, but the good news is I have made peace possible. That's the gospel of peace. That's the good news of peace. He said, I leave my peace with you. Now, put this back in the context of conflict. Think about yourself as a soldier. Maybe you'll remember what Paul said to young Timothy Speaking about being a soldier, he said, And no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. In other words, you cannot be engaged in battle against the enemy in a foreign country and have your head in the clouds and be all tied up and involved in the things of this world. You're going to get hurt. You're going to fail if you do that. That's why our troops are not over there playing the stock market back here. They're not worried about their investments and things of that nature. They're not volunteering for community work and stuff like that. They don't have time for that. Their entire focus is there on their assignment, where whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq or some other part of the world. They have to keep their focus on the fight. And as soldiers of the cross, we have to keep our focus on the fight that we're going through. And if you're here tonight and you say, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. What fight are you talking about? I didn't know he was in a fight. Well, let me tell you one thing. If you are that distant from the church and that distant and that insensitive to what's going on in the world that you don't realize there's a fight going on, there's something seriously wrong with your spiritual life. I'm telling you, we are in a fight for survival, as it were. Well, the soldier cannot function properly if he is anxious, if he's fretful, if he is worried, if he's troubled. Listen, he can't concentrate on the battle if he's so wrapped up in his hardships and so overcome by his fears that all he does is crawl up in a corner in the fetal position and suck his thumb. Listen to me, and and I don't mean for this to be humorous. Do you realize that we've had some of our troops do exactly that? They can't stand the pressure. They send them off to the shrink's office, and if they can't do anything with them, they ship them back home because they absolutely are not compatible with Army life. They just cannot take it. It's just that plain and simple. None of us can be the soldier that we need to be whenever we are overcome by fear, anxiety, like we talked about this morning. You even lose the desire or the willingness to fight, to engage the enemy. If we're going to be victorious, we have to have an inner calm. It's essential because the pressure is on and we can't panic, we can't run, we can't cow down, we cannot refuse to fight. You know, I I wish everybody understood how crucial this is. There are multitudes of professing Christians that are miserable because they're unwilling to do what is necessary to secure the peace of God. You know, the Bible says we are to seek peace, we are to pursue it. 
And that goes beyond us just being at peace with one another. This involves us having the peace of God. Now, you can't have the peace of God until you are at peace with God. But once you are at peace with God, once you've been saved, an entirely new realm of possibilities open up. And a part of that is that suddenly, maybe for the first time in your life, you're able to be in the eye of the storm and you are at peace when all around you is coming apart. The old-time mariners used to talk about that, that whenever they encountered the storm, they didn't have all of the modern-day equipment. They were not, you know, necessarily, you know, able to outrun the storm. So what they did, they went right into it. They drove right into the storm to get to the eye of the storm because they knew there in the eye of the storm there was a calm and they were safe. The answer to our problems in this world, the solution to us not just surviving, but thriving and winning the battle is for us to realize that God has made it possible for us to have peace even in the midst of the storm. It's what Jesus said. The world's going to hate you. They're going to despise you. You're going to suffer persecution. But, but notice what he said. My peace I leave with you. That, that is so personal. My peace. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't just say, I'm going to give you peace. He said, I'm going to give you my peace. Did, did our Lord have peace there in the Garden of Gethsemane when the band of men came out to arrest them? Sure he did. He was at peace with that. In fact, the Bible tells us that he faced the cross even with joy. Simply because he knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that he was doing the will of the Father. That's why Jesus could stand up and say, no man takes my life. No man. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. Now look, we're talking about the need of peace, and we're doing so in the context of warfare. So what I want you to understand is this is more than a matter of us Losing our joy. You know, that's one thing for us to just lose our joy in that quite peaceful feeling. It's bad enough to lose that, but we're talking about survival. We're talking about our usefulness as soldiers of the cross. Because unless we have this peace that Paul is talking about, we're not going to be useful to the cause of Christ. If we've got a troubled spirit, we're always going to be on edge. We're not going to be willing to accept the challenges. Right? I mean, we're on, we're, we're on a turn tail and run. We'll not be able to endure difficulties. And I've noticed that for the most part, those who find themselves in a condition like this, most generally try to blame somebody else for it. They really do. You know, if they can't blame an individual, they'll blame circumstances. Well, I fail. I used to attend church just like you do, Brother Stone. I used to be there every service, and I used to do this, and I used to do that. But, and you almost know what's coming next. Either the preacher ran off of the piano player, or, you know, or something bad happened. They didn't get a raise at work, or, uh, you know, their wife left them, or whatever it is. 
as though they're trying to excuse the fact that they have dropped out on God. They've become a casualty of the warfare. That's why it is essential that we have peace. And that's what I was getting at this morning when I said, I want every member to know beyond any shadow of a doubt, this is where God wants me to be. And as I said this morning, when you know that, if the church is going to go through a hard time, you know you're supposed to be a part of that. You're supposed to run into the fight, not away from the fight. You're supposed to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem, you see. So when we have that kind of peace, knowing that we are where God wants us to be, doing what God wants us to do, then we can deal with those issues. There's a wonderful verse over in Psalms 34, verse 14, and I'm going to wrap it up with this. He says, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. Seek peace. Pursue it. In other words, Jesus said, I've made it available to you. I'm going to give you my peace. But notice, you've got to seek it. It's not going to just come to you automatically. That's the idea that Paul has when he tells us that we are to put this on as a part of the armor, he's implying that we have a responsibility to do this. We could take another 30 minutes talking about how we put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. How do, how do, we, how do we put on this part of the armor? A lot of things could be said. I was sitting there in the chair just a while ago, and I was thinking about that, and uh, I just quickly took out my pen and jotted down four things that just happened to come to my mind. Now, we could double that number in a heartbeat. That wouldn't be no problem at all. Number one, if we're going to have the peace of God that passeth all understanding, and remember what he said, when we have this peace of God that passeth all understanding, it keeps our heart and our mind. In other words, it, it's the thing that settles us down and keeps us going. It is, it is our guard, so to speak. And in order to have that, we've got to repent of all known sin. I cannot enjoy the peace of God when I know that there is sin in my heart that I've never repented of. Now, we've all got a choice, don't we? Because we all sin at some time or another, don't we? Sure we do. Are you going to allow your sin to rob you of the peace of God and consequently your usefulness to God, or will you repent of that sin? Secondly, not necessarily in any particular order, but another thing that comes to my mind, not only must I repent of all known sin, I must be reconciled to those others that I am at odds with. Whether we're talking about a family, a church, or your place of employment, any time that we are in the presence of other people and we have relationships with people, there's going to be conflicts arise. You've heard the old saying about marriage being 50-50. Let me tell you, that's nonsense. It cannot be 50-50. If it's 50-50, it's going to fail. It has to be 100-100%. That's the only way marriage will work. 100% commitment from both parties. But there's going to be conflicts. And when there are, we must do everything in our power to secure reconciliation. 
The Lord even dealt with that. He said, you know, if we bring our gift to the altar and there we remember that our brother hath ought against us, He says, leave your gift at the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother and then, then you can come and offer your gift up. In other words, then you're in a position of readiness to worship me. And I, you know, I think sometimes we need to have the invitation at the beginning of the service instead of the end and get our hearts in a state of readiness for the service and so that God will be able to bless us. And let me say, if you're a child of God and in a conflict with somebody else, you'll never have the peace of God unless you do everything in your power trying to reconcile with that other person. I know you can blame them. It, listen, it might be all their fault. It, at this point, it doesn't make any difference whose fault it is. I remember some years ago counseling with a couple, and we got into this very statement here that the need for reconciliation, but the bone of contention was this. Well, it's all their fault. It's not my fault. I'll never forget the statement that I made that day. I said, look, somebody's got to be the strong party here. Somebody's got to be strong enough to say, regardless of whose fault it is, that no longer matters. The problem is so serious that we've got to deal with the issue and work for reconciliation, regardless of whose fault it is. And by the way, even if it is all their fault, the fact of the matter remains, it's only by the grace of God. It wasn't all your fault. So we have to do everything in our power to be reconciled to our Christian family. Number three, we have to root out all bitterness. You'll never have the peace of God in your heart until you root out that bitterness. Paul dealt with that over in the book of Hebrews. Root out that bitterness. It's, listen, bitterness is a dangerous thing. And there might be someone here tonight, and you think back to, to your early years of life, and you think of some terrible, terrible crime that's been committed against you. You know, there, there, there's a part of me that wishes that everybody knew, uh, everybody in the church knows what I know in regards to people's lives. Now, I say there's just a part of me because it helps you to be more sympathetic toward people and so on and so forth, give you a better understanding of what they've gone through. But I realize that wouldn't be the best thing because you don't need to know everything that the pastor in some way finds out, even though he doesn't want to know by virtue of his position, you end up finding out things. And let me tell you right now, whether you believe it's true or you know anything about it or do not, you probably would not believe all of the horror stories that could be told of the ways that people, I'm talking about members of this church, the ways they've been abused and hurt in the past. Some of the stories are absolutely mind-boggling and shocking. I'm talking about people that walk among you, people you would never suspect ever had that kind of a problem. Let me tell you, if they remain in a state of bitterness, if they do not get past the past, what happened to them, 
They'll never be able to enjoy the blessings that God wants them to have. They'll never become the useful servants that God wants them to be. Folks, we have to root out that bitterness, regardless of who's right and who's wrong. But I jotted down another thing, and I think I, I, I just don't think any list would be complete without this. If we're going to enjoy the peace of God, we have to remember the goodness of God. I love the way Paul put it in Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And there, he's not speaking about a battle and conflict, he's speaking about a race. And he tells us that we are to keep our eyes on Jesus, looking to Him, keep our focus there. And it will help you more than you can begin to imagine if you'll keep your focus on the goodness of God. Think about how gracious God has been. I mean, here we are totally, absolutely undeserving of anything from God. And God not only gave His Son, God has given us one blessing after another, after another, after another. And I, I don't know about you, but it sure helps me when I'm going through a tough time and the battle is raging and you know, I, and I just feel like throwing in the town quitting. It helps me to remember He never quit on me. Amen. He never gave up on me. And that in spite of my faults and failures, God was always good to me. I mean, listen, from the very beginning... You know, before I was saved, I realized that God existed. And I realized that God was powerful. I could look up into the sky and look at the stars. And I knew, boy, God must be powerful and God must be wise. Look at this, the delicate order of how He has, He keeps all of this in balance. Nobody had taught me about God. I just knew there's got to be a God. And He has to be wise. He has to be strong. But the thing that knocked my socks off, the thing that floored me, the thing that just absolutely caused me to melt under the sound of His Word was the fact that God was good. Remember, Paul said it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Boy, whenever I heard that He loved us and that while we were yet sinners... How can God be that good to, to me, to anyone? As we face this new year, and we can expect to do battle with, the, with Satan, I want you to know that unless your feet are shod with this good news of peace, without the peace that Jesus provides, unless you take whatever steps are necessary to enjoy this peace, you're not going to be prepared for what lies ahead. I'm not trying to, you know, to pour a bucket of water over everything and leave the impression that your life's going to be miserable in 2011. I'm not saying that. I'm just going to say it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a struggle. There are going to be valleys just like there were mountains, and we need to adorn ourselves in the whole armor of God. We can't, listen, we can't leave this off any more than we could leave the breastplate off or the girdle off. We, we need every piece of the armor that God has provided. Amen. And it's our responsibility to put this on. 
Going back to what Paul said, remember, he said, and if we have the peace of God that passeth all understanding, he said, it'll keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And he said, and the things that you've seen and heard and learned, you know, of me, he said, do. You do those things. And if you do those things, what? The end result is you'll enjoy this peace that is so desperately needed for the perilous times in which we live. I wish you peace this coming year. But me wishing it and it happening are two different things. You've got to take the proper steps to adorn yourself with the peace that Jesus provided. Let's bow together as we pray. Father, how we thank You that You've made every provision that's necessary for us to be victorious. And I know, Lord, just like most people, it's real easy when I fail to always want to blame somebody else. And Lord, help me tonight to understand that all of my failures can be directly 100% attributed to me, not to anyone else. And I know that You've made provision. You've given us this armor that protects us and not only protects us, but the armor that provides us with what we need to be able to win the battle. And Lord, tonight there might be someone here that uh, although they excel in many areas of life, and they might be their, the most faithful members in the church, but yet, Lord, that, that peace that Jesus provided is missing. Help them tonight to do whatever they have to do to enjoy the peace of God. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I can hear my Savior calling. I can my Savior calling, I can hear my Savior calling, take my cross and follow, Think about what you're singing now. Where He leads me. Me, I will follow. Where He leads me, I will follow. attention. Anyone have a final word before we leave? Something that needs to be mentioned? Announcement or any such thing?